0: It's wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. Yesterday, we celebrated Veterans Day, 11-11. We celebrated those who have served uh, our country, those who have gone overseas in order to serve. And uh, I got a chance to spend this week with my favorite veteran of all time. That's my dad. Many of you know that my dad uh, in the Marine Corps, a veteran of two wars. He was in the Vietnam conflict when I was born. And, uh, and then he was in Desert Storm when I was in college. Uh, so in pivotal points in my life, he was uh, out and, and you know, working and protecting uh, the, the freedoms that we hold dear and actually so often take for granted. But what I want to remind us all of is when we gather in this place, we're always celebrating this truth. And the truth is that there is no freedom without sacrifice. There is no freedom without sacrifice, and how we celebrate it here is we recognize the freedom that we have uh, spiritually, the freedom in our spiritual lives comes from the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has given on the cross of Calvary, but I want you to know that that's also true in terms of the freedoms, again, that we enjoy and that we take for granted. Uh, those who serve, serve and they sacrifice uh, so that on behalf of the fact that we get a chance to enjoy freedom, so here's what I'd like to do this morning, and I won't take very long, but if you have served in any of our armed forces or are currently serving, would you please stand and let us honor you today? We just want to make sure we honor you. Hey, God bless you. Kit, God bless you. Yeah, absolutely. God bless you. Thank you, man. Thanks, you guys. God bless you. Yeah, we love you. Thank you very much. We are grateful. Excellent, excellent. Well, go ahead and grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see that we are continuing our journey through the book of Nehemiah. This is part six, week six, and in chapter six of this book. And what we have covered so far is that we recognize Jerusalem was in ruins and had been in ruins for 141 years. And Nehemiah hears this news, and he is 800 miles away in the capital of Persia, the city of Susa. He's serving in the court of King Artaxerxes. Uh, There will not be a quiz at the end of this, by the way. (laughs) And, and so he hears this news that Jerusalem is in shambles, and it begins to build a vision in his heart. God begins to stir a vision in his heart for what could be for the people of Jerusalem, for the city of Jerusalem, for God's work there to restore the temple and restore the livelihoods, the hope, the future, and the walls, and the safety of God's people. Now, when Nehemiah received this vision, just, just keep in mind, he didn't have the money to pull it off. He did not have the muscle to pull it off. He didn't even have the permission to pull it off from the king that he served. So there was all kinds of reality that spoke against the vision that God had stirred in Nehemiah's heart. But here's where you and I have to, to sort of take a pause. We should always keep one eye on the reality of our situation, but we should never let reality dominate our lives. Amen, right? When God gives a vision, when God stirs our hearts, we need to be ready to have faith in him and trust in him that as we say yes to his vision that he will open the doors along the way. And that's exactly what we see in the story of Nehemiah. But as we've also seen, whenever the people of God go to, to go after the vision of God, there are opponents. There are people who oppose God, who oppose the work of God, and who oppose the people of God. And that's what we see again in Nehemiah. So we've already seen it. Actually, we'll see it again. But this is where we are in chapter 6. It says, and again, Nehemiah's writing, when Sanballat, Tobiah... Geshem. Now, you might want to circle all three of those names, or at least the middle one, Tobiah. These names have come up before. They'll come up again. These are the chief baddie-bads. These guys, these are no good. They are definitely against what Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. And the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no more breaks in it, even though I hadn't yet installed the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent this message. Come and meet with us at Kepharim in the valley of Ono. I knew they were scheming to hurt me. So I sent messengers back with this. I am doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work come to a standstill just so I can come down to see you? Four times they sent this message and four times I gave them my answer. Would you please underline the, the phrase, I am doing a great work and I can't come down. Okay. Now what we see here is we see that these are enemies of God and they're enemies of God's people and they're enemies of the work of God. Uh, Where this becomes personal is you need to recognize that there is an enemy Of God that does come against you in your life as you follow after the things of God. And and, and we've talked about this before, Overlake. I am certain we are going to cover this reality again, that when you come to faith, when you put your trust in Jesus, you allow the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary to forgive you and cleanse you and make you a child of God, there is this eternal shift that happens, that you are now a part of God's family. You are a son or a daughter of the most God, and the Bible says that God sends his spirit to come and to dwell within us, we are all temples of God as well. So these are the realities, and then there's this one more reality, and it's a little bit less exciting, and that is that now there's a target on us, and the enemy of God begins to come against us, to come against us and to come against the work of God. We actually found a a little comic strip that we thought this was kind of interesting. We lost another battle. Why does this keep happening, right? Well, they got targets, you know, that was their, their idea. Let's paint targets on everything. And that obviously is just one of those realities that we have to keep in mind. We have an enemy who comes against us specifically and skillfully and strategically. And these men were coming against Nehemiah, trying to take him out. The Bible says there's an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to take us out at well. And yet, do we recognize when the enemy is coming, when the invitation of the enemy arrives, when the temptation that the enemy sends arrives? Are we recognizing it the way that Nehemiah did? Because the invitation of the enemy always looks good, it looks appealing, it looks tempting. And if it didn't look tempting, we wouldn't struggle with it, right? And, and so you can imagine these invitations that come to Nehemiah. They're, they're embossed on nice stationery. It's a good calligraphy written, you know. The, the, the invitation comes, and yet Nehemiah is able to shut the invitation down again and again and again. How does he do it? The same way you and I are to do it, if you're filling in the blanks. He's, he focused on the great work that God called him to. And so in your life, we need to focus on the great work that God is calling us to in order to say no to the invitation of the enemy. Nehemiah so clearly said, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And I want you to notice something for a moment. Nehemiah didn't just say he was doing a great work. He actually was doing a great work. But yet he was so focused on that great work, he was able to use that as his reasons. I can't come down because I am involved in a great work of God. And so he was focused on that, and that became the strength that he needed to say no to this invitation of the enemy. I was talking with my creative team this week, and Pastor Pat let me know that the, 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 the chief example in his life of focus is his dog, Romeo. I do just want you to know there is a therapy group for those who name their dog Romeo, but uh, that's beside the point. He was telling me that Romeo will see a squirrel in a tree or he'll see a duck on the pond and then Romeo will just lock in. And, he, you know, his nose pointing, his paw up, like, he, you know, his back arched, little hairs on the spine, like just, chooom, uh, this is the direction of the enemy, right? And he will be so focused on that query that Pat can't even get him to get unfocused. He, he, he you know, he, he can't, like, tempt him away with a frisbee. He doesn't, you know, if there's a tree, like, here, here, have some food. Romeo won't turn, like, he's just locked in on his prey. Even when Pat picks up the dog and begins to carry him away, Romeo's still like, woo, 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 you know, like trying to see his query. Now, here's the deal. Are, are you as focused on the good work that God is doing in you and through you, right? Are, are we focused on the stuff that God is up to in our lives or do we kind of dismiss it? Because over like, you are doing a great work. I love the good work that God is doing through us as a church family. Back in 2009, God, I had this really interesting experience with God. We were right on the, the front end of launching into a campaign season called OCC 2012. And we were trying to pray over and seek God for what is it that He wanted us to go after in terms of individual missions over the course of the next several years. And one of the visions that God gave me was a vision of a thousand kids without homes, unwanted, on the streets. Being in homes, cared for, adopted, you know, loved and nurtured in homes that were not only graceful and loving, but also centered on Jesus. And it was just a beautiful vision. I mean, I was so emotionally wrapped up in that moment. And and it began the, the trajectory of what we've gone after since then. And many of you know this, we've worked so hard on the prevention side of, of things with the, with the poorest of the poor in these areas of, of Africa, Katali, where we've done w- uh, clean water projects, we've done agricultural training and equipping, and all that was for prevention, to keep you know kids that are, that are right on the edge you know, of poverty, that, that they would be able to stay in their homes and in schools and have a future there. And then um, we started a thing here, the Children's Law Center, and Andrew, the, the guy who heads that up, our chief attorney, he's been able to complete 317 adoptions over the last several years. Yeah, it's amazing. So you got the prevention and you got the adoptions that are happening and that number just keeps ticking up and ticking up and it's just so wonderful to see. And then now with the Catali project that we're putting our hand to, we know that we're going to get there. And the reason why I have such confidence in the fact that we're going to get there is because in a neighboring city where our partners have already been at work, they have been able to place 1,800 children from the streets into loving, caring homes. So we know that we can get there with this Catali project. And it's just is one of those amazing realities. I can't believe the opportunity we have to make this happen. And I want you to know, because some of you, you know, you hear that and you're like, oh, that's that's nice. This is a church that does good things. But I also, I want you to know that these good things are right at the heart of what God says is important. These things are really near and dear to God's heart all the way through scripture. In fact, I want to read you a passage from Ezekiel chapter 16. And this is God speaking to his prophet Ezekiel, uh, through his prophet Ezekiel, rather. He says, On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed, rubbed with salt, and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. But I came by... And I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live. And I helped you thrive like a plant in the field. Over like, this is the good work that the Catali Project accomplishes for those who have been unwanted, for those who have been neglected, those who have been marginalized, those without voice or hope or future, we're helping them get into homes being cared for and loved. And it, and it's just a beautiful thing that we get to be a part of this. And again, for those of you who are part of Overlake, you've been a part of Overlake for a while, you know that this is by no means the only thing that we are going after. I, I just saw a Facebook post from one of our pastors, Lynn, and, and she's coming back from Lebanon. She posted this week. Look what God is doing. Great response to the Katali Project initiative. Teams currently in Middle East caring for refugees, working in Thailand, combating sex trafficking, and serving in Southern Europe as workers in the Muslim world are trained and equipped. So proud of you, Overlake. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so proud of you as well. I love our church. And by now, so many of you, you, I'm guessing that virtually every one of you has heard that we've been talking about the Katali Project over the course of this series. And if you haven't, maybe you've seen the the exhibit on the way in, in the hallway. Maybe you're a family, hundreds of you have taken the, the magnets off of that exhibit because they have names of the kids on the street. So maybe you and your family have been praying over one of the names. You've been having those kind of conversations. But here's the deal. I want to make sure that we do our due diligence to over-communicate how exciting this project is. So please, go ahead and watch this video.
1: The Katali project exists because there is a problem. The problem is there are children living on the streets in Katali, Kenya, elementary school aged and younger. These are vulnerable kids without shelter, begging for food to survive, beaten and abused. And to cope with the pain of life, they often turn to the deadly addiction of sniffing glue. The goal of the Katali project is to empty the Katali streets of children, rehabilitate and reintegrate these children into safe families. The first step is for caring adults to make relational connections with these kids in order to show them there's a way to escape the extreme danger of life on the streets. These children receive a loving welcome at our transition center, where they're offered a safe bunk to sleep in, nutritious meals, and clean clothing by the compassionate and competent Kenyan staff. Right away, the rehabilitation process begins. These traumatized children enter into a rehabilitation process to address the spiritual, physical, and emotional anguish they've experienced both prior to and during their time on the streets. This usually takes 30 to 90 days. From the moment a child arrives at the transition center, the work of reintegrating them into a safe and loving family begins. Kenyan staff meet with the child to investigate family origin and home village, and staff visit the village to interview extended family members and develop a reintegration plan. If a child's family of origin is not a safe option, staff search for another suitable family in their home village. Once the child is living back in a safe home environment, regular follow-up visits to the household continue through age 18. The child is connected to a local church family, and if necessary, staff address social issues that impact community life, like clean drinking water or agricultural development training, both of which Overlake has rich experience with in this region. The entire effort is built upon the redemption Jesus brings. So the Katali project will receive kids from the streets, rehabilitate them in our transition center, and reintegrate them back into homes. It's a plan that has already proven successful, and we already have partners in place to make this a reality. The reality of bringing hope and a future to these children Jesus loves.
0: guys, I am so excited about this. I really am. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what we're going to go after, and, and uh, that is the, the current good work that God is doing in and through us. You know, I, I am. I've, I've been thinking about this, and I think one of the reasons why Christians, and especially Christians in America, have a tough time doing what Nehemiah did is because they're not focused on the good work that God is doing in them and through them. They don't understand how often God is meeting them and growing them and gracing them. And they don't see how just their Um, presence in situations changes things, that their influence in their workplace or their classroom for the sake of the kingdom changes things. They don't see how just a simple prayer that they pray changes the environment, how transformative they can be as they enter in and and begin to care for the needs of their neighbors or their family members or friends. Uh, They're not focused on it. And because we're not focused on the good work that God is doing, because we're, we're not sure that we're involved in something that is of ultimate significance, something that is foundationally beautiful, um, then it gets really easy for us to just substitute that with stuff that's less important. And that's why so many people get so excited about when the next Star Wars movie is coming out, or when the next season of Stranger Things is coming out, or how, how you know, the, the latest football scores, or whatever. Like, again, those things aren't bad things, but they, they're certainly not ultimately important things. And yet, we sort of substitute them. Why? Because as Christians in America, we're just bored. And the reason why we're bored is we're not focused on the good work that God is doing in us and through us. And so uh, here's the deal. And this is in the New Testament as well. Romans 12, 21. It says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by, say it with me, doing good. Right, we're doing good. We're putting our hand to the good work that God calls us to, and that's how we conquer evil. And so the phrase that Nehemiah said, "This is what I want to teach you. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down." I want you to repeat this after me. I am doing a great work. Let's hear it. And I cannot come down. All right. So that's our focus. That's how we defeat the invitation of the enemy. And I would say. Friends, that's kind of invigorating, at least it is to me. It's kind of invigorating for me to kind of focus on, well, where is God at work in my life, and where is the manifestation of the kingdom, and, and, and how important really is this stuff that I'm going after, because it really is important. It makes a difference. It, may, it changes eternity. Like, all that stuff is really, really true. To me, that's invigorating. The second truth, however, we see from Nehemiah, this can be a little bit more discouraging, and that is, be prepared to repeat yourself. Be prepared to repeat yourself. And Nehemiah, we see this. He had to repeat himself again and again and again. The invitation of the enemy kept coming back. And so this is a challenge to keep at it and to stay strong. Nehemiah has to, four times, he has to say the exact same response. I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. And you would hope that it would get easier every time the temptation comes. Think about your own life for a moment. Sometimes that's true, but it's just as uh, plausible that it actually gets more difficult to say no the more time the temptation comes. In fact, you, know, you could imagine that, that the more he says no and, and the closer that the job is to completion and that more exhausted he is as he's been working so hard for, for all this time that, that may, ah, maybe I'll just take a break. May, maybe I'll meet with him and it won't be that bad. May, you know, and it just gets a little bit more worn down along the way. And that's why we've got to be encouraging ourselves, encouraging one another to just say, no, you know what? I said no and I meant no. No, I, I'm actually doing a really good work. God's doing a good work through me. No, I can't do that. It'll distract from the good work that's going on here. No, I love the kind of person that God's developing me, me, me into. I love what he's doing in my family. No, I, I'm putting my hand to a good work, and I cannot come down. And you just keep repeating it again and again and again. I got a chance to sit at the feet of a man named John Eldridge. And, and many of you might know John Eldridge. He's, he's written several books, including Waking the Dead. And all of his books have a, a similar theme, the theme about living victorious in Christ and, and overcoming temptation and sort of successfully and victoriously uh, approaching the battlefield spiritually. And, and so I was aware of all this. I was prepared that he would probably be sharing stories about this kind of thing from his own life. And, and it was a great, great time with him for sure but the one thing that I was unprepared for was how current and recent the stories that he would share actually were. So he would tell this incredible story about facing temptation and and battling it, and this was a story that happened last Tuesday. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy literally wrote the book on living victorious over temptation, and he's dealing with this stuff just last Tuesday, And I was like, oh my, that is so encouraging, right? Like, oh, I'm normal, you know? And oh, okay, I get it that that this is what the battle looks like. And this is what the spiritual journey looks like. And so we have to be prepared and encouraged to repeat ourselves again and again and again. And I do want to just spend a moment talking to the person here who's so discouraged that that one temptation just keeps plaguing you. That that one area just keeps, uh, that struggle that you face, you know, the enemy just keeps hammering in your life. And and you think there's something wrong with you. You think, oh, I I should definitely be more mature. I should definitely be beyond this by now kind of a thing. And here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that the only thing that temptation says about you is that you are important to the kingdom of God. And God is doing great work through you. And that's why the enemy keeps coming after you. That's the only thing it says. This does not say that there's something wrong or that you're immature. No, it says that God thinks you're awesome. And God's doing great stuff through you and the enemy wants to shut it down. Okay? Bless you, my friend. Good to see you, Joseph. All right. Anyone else? No? Okay, all right. Let's keep going. We'll go verse 5 in chapter 6. It says, Then the fifth time. So here's another time that these guys are going to send a letter. The fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. In other words, it's open, and everyone's reading it. Uh, unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations. So everybody's talking about this reported among the nations, oh, and Geshem says it's true. Well, if Geshem says it's true, you know, it must be true here, um, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. Nehemiah says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You were just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Another translation actually says that last phrase, I continued the work with even greater determination. Friends, that's what grit is. That stubborn spiritual determination not to give in, but to press on. And that's what Nehemiah had, and that's what we need to have as well. And so here's the third truth. We need to strengthen our hands and stand firm. Strengthen your hands and stand firm. What's interesting to me is the enemy has switched to outright lies. Instead of temptation here, it's now intimidation. And so you have to think, well, what is the goal of the enemy in my life? What's the goal of the enemy of God in your life? And it's, it's to take out the people of God and to stop the work of God. It, it's really clear. It's always been the same. And one of the chief ways that the enemy works through is lies, He's the father of lies, so he's going to work through lies, and that's what we see here. The lie that comes against Nehemiah is you're working without the permission of the king in order to defy the king because you want to establish yourself as king. And we're going to tell the king all this, so you better come and talk to us. Now, Nehemiah, he knew it was just a lie. It was a lie. They, They were accusing him of treason, but he knew it was a lie because. He knew he was working with the permission of the king. The king in Susa, King Artaxerxes, had actually given him men and money and given him blessing and letters of recommendation and all this stuff. So Nehemiah knew that he was operating with the permission of the king, but more importantly than that, he knew he was working for the king of kings. And that's where you and I need to stand. That's how we strengthen our hands. We recognize, no, we're working for the king of kings. We're working for the one true king, for our Lord. Ephesians six ten and 11 and following says, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. See, the mighty power we have isn't our own. It comes from the Lord. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. Stand your ground. And if you're looking for a methodology or you want something to work on even this week when it comes to overcoming temptation, I recommend Ephesians chapter 6. As you read through that and you look at all the armor of God that that the Lord provides for us and just kind of pray over that and visualize yourself putting on the armor that he provides so that you can strengthen your hand and stand. I wonder if, if you know, have people ever spread lies about you? Hey, have you ever been in that situation where maybe in your workplace or, you know, you just hear that there are rumors, people just kind of tip, tip, and you're just, oh, wow, where did, where did that come from? There, there's at least one scenario in my, I've been in ministry for 26 years. There was at least one time when I'm aware of that, that there, were, there were lies or, you know, rumors being spread about me. And it was confusing more than anything else. It just confused me. And it was back in 2009, we, again, I I mentioned that we were ramping up for this campaign that God was leading us into. And so we started the year with a series called The Year of Living Dangerously. And the whole idea behind this series was that we were taking Overlake to a place and challenging Overlake to be in a place of financial faithfulness. And the idea was that we wanted to be financially faithful and generous to the Lord, starting with the tithe that comes to the Lord and, and being brought to the Lord in the house of God, but then being ready for anything additionally that God was calling us to go after, and and this is where my wife and I have been living, and this is where I would just challenge you if you've never settled this issue of being financially faithful, it is so incredibly empowering. It takes away anxiety over finances. It, it, it thwarts materialism. There's an incredible amount of God's peace and, and uh, as he provides for you. So, I mean, there's all of this good stuff. So, so that's definitely where I would encourage you to be. But we talked through that, and then we did this kind of final thing where we did a celebration and a commitment. And all that was through January, mid-February. Well, then midwinter break came. And many of you already know this, but my family and I hail from Southern California. That's where our family members still live. Uh, about February, we, we, it, we need a sliver of sunshine. Like, it's, it's, a, it, it's dire at that point. And so I just kind of scooped my family up at midwinter break. And we went down and we spent 10 days with my folks down in Southern California and then came back. But, but I just want you to envision this whole thing. So Todd threw this series on, on, and made this commitment with the church, and then I was MIA for two weeks, and then I come back, and a concerned member of Overlake comes to me and says, Pastor Mike, there are rumors going around that you are unhappy with the commitment that Overlake made financially. And so you were down in California interviewing at other churches. Is that true? Are you leaving us? And I was like... <laughs> I love you, why would I leave you, you know? Like, and this is so true, and over, like, I hope you know this, but I, I never even thought I could love a church as much as I love you. I absolutely love you. I love being on this journey with you. I love raising my kids in this place. I, I love the the way that you love Jesus and how outlandishly loving that we are in terms of our whole community. We're committed to blessing our city. And I, I mean, the, the list could go on and on about how much I love you. And so absolutely, the answer was no. I, I, was, I was laying in the sunshine and there is this thing called sun in February. Like it's, it's a real... Thing. I, I love Overlake, but if God would choose to pick all of you up and take us all to a white sand beach, I would be happy about that. Like that would be okay, but but I'm not leaving. I'm not interviewing. It, you know, why would I leave a church I love to go to some place that I don't even know and it could be whack out, you know, just wall-eyed Christian. I, like that's not what I'm interested in. So no, I, I, like, and that's true today still. So, but here's the thing. I asked him, I said, look, do me a favor. You've heard the truth from me. Now go to the people that told you this thing and tell them the truth and challenge them to go to the people who told them and, and, and make sure that they bring the truth. Like you have to cut off lies when you find them, right? you got to stand in the truth and confront the lie. You know how this works in our world today. It's amazing how much faster negativity travels, If you have a great experience doing something, you might tell three friends. If you have a horrible experience, you'll tell 3,000 friends, right? Um, This was an open letter in Nehemiah. That means that the letter was unsealed. So every city they went to, they would share this contents of this letter. They would share this accusation of treason against Nehemiah. Every sort of village that they went to, they just shared around and kind of just poisoned Nehemiah's reputation. But think about the world we live in today, with social media, blogging, with tweeting, with just the 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 incredible. You know, we can just we can disseminate a lie like, and I'm sure you've heard this, but a lie will travel halfway around the world in the time that truth is still putting on its shoes. Right? It's just one of the ways in which humans like to spread lies. We like to gossip. And and so it's so important for us to commit ourselves to stand in the truth. Nehemiah says, look, nothing like this is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. Let me tell you where this is the most insidious. The father of lies, the enemy of God, will come directly to you And he will speak his lies directly into your mind. And he will say things like this. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. You are not a child of God. You are not worthy of love. There is nothing about you that's lovable. You are not important in the kingdom of God. There is no reason why anyone would ever love you or care for you. In fact, there is no God. You are not forgiven. You are not cleansed. You are not whole. Jesus hasn't died on the cross for you. And the list goes on and on and on. They're lies from the pit of hell. And that's why it's so important for us to stand in the truth, right? That's so important for us to understand the light of Christ in our lives and to stand in the reality that I am a beloved child of the Most High God, the, the God who created all things. The God who is a God of love. The God who is uh, providing our salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's through Jesus that I am loved. And it's through Jesus Christ that I am forgiven, and I am cleansed, and I am made whole. And the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. So I am actually free because the Spirit of God dwells within me, and, and I am more than a conqueror, and I am empowered, and I am, I am whole, and I am ready for all things because of Christ who gives me strength. And, and these are the true realities of our lives. So we must stand in the truth. See, the scripture says this in Psalm 65, Three, though we are overwhelmed by our sins, you forgive them all. And you might want to circle that word all, that all is forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And again, as you go through this chapter in Nehemiah, you're going to see a couple more times intimidation comes, lies come. Nehemiah just has this incredible grit, this incredible perseverance. And then it says in verse 15, Nehemiah's writing, says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So what took, uh, it was in rubble for 141 years, but in 52 days, it's complete. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Okay. So what's interesting to me about this passage is, the, the first off, when God gives a vision, God will open the opportunity and provide the way for his vision to be fulfilled. And that's exactly what we see. Nehemiah walking in faithfulness, perseverance, standing in strength. He has this grit, right? And, and so it's complete. But what I love about this passage is it says, all the surrounding nations saw this. All of them were afraid. All of them lost confidence, their self-confidence. So what this means for us, number four, the great work that God does through you will have impact far beyond your borders. It will have impact all around your world. And, and when you live the life that he calls you to live, you bring glory to God and people notice. They see this. They see how you're choosing to live. They see how you have peace, no matter what trials you're facing in your life. They see how you approach things like generosity. They see how you talk to people who might have differing views about social issues or political issues. They, they see, is there a graciousness to you? Is there a generosity to you? Is, it, is there something different about the way in which you steward your life and your family resources? Is there more love in your home? because of the person of Jesus. Like all of these things, as you seek to glorify God, people will notice. The good work that you put your hand to, it will have impact far beyond your borders. And then he continues, it says here uh, in verse 17, also, he says, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah. You remember that guy? He's one of the chief three bad guys, Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me he sent letters to intimidate me you know at this point the walls done and the gates are in and like Nehemiah successful and the victory's been won and God's received his glory and you just feel like tobiah knock it off dude You lost, man. I I feel like this is the end of uh, Ferris Bueller after the credits roll, you know, and he walks out in a bathrobe and says, look, it's over. The movie's over, go home, right? And, and here it is, Tobiah. He's still just keeping up. He's still
1: just
0: whatever he can do to create problems for Nehemiah. He's lost, like he can't win. The, the wall's not gonna be undone at this point by his letter writing campaign, but he still wants to be a jerk to Nehemiah. Now, here's the last truth, and I hope it's encouraging, but I highly doubt it. Are you ready? Number five, even after great victory, the attack continues. Even after a great victory, the attack continues. Do you know we always fall for this one? We always, I do anyway. I always think to myself, oh, you know what? If if we can just win this victory, then the the attack will discontinue, right? Then then we'll get to a place where it'll be relatively peaceful on the battlefield. The trials will ease up. The temptations will kind of drift off. Like, Like once we reach this, once we accomplish this, once we get this mature, then all this stuff will be easier. It's not gonna happen, is it? Now, as long as we live in this fallen world, as long as we serve Jesus and follow Jesus and walk with Jesus in a world that is so broken where the lies of the enemy have so invaded all kinds of different things in this in this fallen reality it's it's going to be difficult for us. The attacks are going to continue that that this is one of those, so that's why I really do want to encourage you, right? This is this is where we do need grit. We need perseverance, steadfastness. We need one another in this journey because it's not going to ease up. In fact, I just, I want to go back to this thing. In fact, the more powerful you are in God's kingdom, the chances are the enemy wants to come after you even more hard, right? With more of his guns blazing. Why? Because you're important in God's kingdom, and he hates it. You're, You're doing beautiful things for the Lord, You're bringing great glory to God. You're you're totally helping other people. and, And the enemy of God doesn't want any of that to be a reality. And so the attack will continue even after the victory. The attack continues. I want to end our time focusing directly on the person of Jesus himself. Because if you look at Jesus, you see that this is the life that he lived as well. That Jesus, he, he came to this earth, and, and right away, it was hardship. Right away, there was difficulty. Right away, there was, there was poverty that he lived in. There, there was, uh, if you look at Revelation, you see that right away, there, the, the, you know, the, the enemy was aware of him and was coming against him. Many of you know that his ministry began. It began with this wilderness trek where he spent all this time in the wilderness, and there was temptation after temptation that he had to deal with. You already know that on the night that he was betrayed, he spent time in the garden in anguish. You can only imagine the kind of temptation, the kind of mental trial, the kind of emotional, spiritual assault he was under in the garden of Gethsemane as he prayed with such intensity that his sweat was as drops of blood. And then, of course, the attack became completely manifest the next day when he was crucified. The crown of thorns thrust down on his head, the whip just lancing his back wide open, the incredible mockery and abuse as they ripped his beard out and struck him and spit upon him and mocked him. Saved others, how come you can't save yourself? They nailed our Jesus to a cross. Think about the attack that came against Jesus. And yet, what did Jesus do? He said, I am putting my hand to a good work and I cannot come down until it's complete. And he completed the good work that he and the Lord decided on before the foundations of the earth. He completed the good work so that salvation is a reality, so that our forgiveness is a reality and our cleansing, so that we are adopted fully into his family as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what he accomplished on the cross. And so friends, it's because Jesus has victory that you and I can live in victory. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted and tried in every single way that you and I will ever be. He knows exactly what we're going through. And because he knows what we're going through, he will have grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So let's finish with this verse from Hebrews, which says, This high priest of ours, that's Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. I would invite you to come boldly to the throne of grace today. Come boldly to the person of Jesus Christ today. That you would recognize that he does love you, he knows you that he has accomplished victory for us so that as we live in him and draw close to him, we can be empowered by him and strengthened by him, that we can live as more than conquerors because of what he has done for us. So Jesus, we do come boldly to the throne of grace today. We come boldly to your throne. We know that you know where we are. We know that you know what we wrestle with. We know that you understand what the trial is and the struggle and the temptation. And so we are, we are laid bare before you. We, we know that you see all of this. And we are so thankful today for your grace and your mercy in our time of need. We ask that you would allow us to be able to focus on the good work that you have called us to and the good work that you are accomplishing in and through us so that we would be able to stand firm when the temptations come. And Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that just like Nehemiah, you would allow us to accomplish great things the vision that you have given us for your kingdom and for your glory's sake. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.